The Charles Adler Show starts now. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm going to break a rule here. It's not a, it's not a hard and fast rule, just a bit of a, a rule. Generally, I, I don't discuss things that I don't have a great deal of passion for. And somewhere along the line of covering, I don't know, six or seven or ten, whatever it is, hundreds, it seems, cabinet shuffles, somewhere along the line I, I, I drew a conclusion that only a handful of people cared, and they were all inside Ottawa. And if I wasn't a fan of politics, and I mean a, a you know great big fan bordering on fanatic, I, I probably wouldn't care about cabinet shuffles. And so I just shuffled aside the topic. And here I am in a, in a new life, enjoying a, a new world with new followers on the podcast. It just seems to me that a lot of people who are junkies are into the latest shuffle, and there are a multitude of reasons for that which my, my guests can describe. But Evan, I want to thank you so much for uh, bringing me back to the world of cabinet shuffles. Well, I am happy to find meaning and importance in what seems to be ritualistic Ottawa nonsense. So if I can be the decoder ring from Ottawa arcane, you know, Ottawa, Ottawa arcane nonsense to um, importance to real people, you know, happy to serve that role. Today. One of the reasons is I'd open up the lines, uh, you know, once in a while and just quiz the population and ask them for names. And it was very rare that anyone could even name more than one or two cabinet ministers. And I thought to myself, if, if nobody actually knows who's in the cabinet, what difference does it make? So let me ask you that, that question. What difference does it make? I think it does make a difference because good cabinet ministers don't have to be known to be good cabinet ministers. A lot of the time, the best cabinet ministers, the most competent cabinet ministers are the ones you never hear from because their departments are running well and they're not becoming opposition focused, right? You're not having situations where their policy failures or their competence issues or their ethics call into question because they're just doing the job they're supposed to do well, right? They're implementing legislation, they're running a department, they're ensuring that, you know, take national revenue, right? When was the last time anyone heard from a minister of national revenue? Never, but making sure that people get their tax returns and their GSD credits and their, you know, grocery benefits or whatever the, that was called, making sure people get that on time, on schedule, get the money they're supposed to, it's important work. And so I think that even if the ministers themselves are not always the you know highest profile names, that's not always a bad thing. And, it, and I think a lot of times sort of media coverage and competence are not always correlated, but a lot of times people who are rising stars are rising stars because they're good at doing the five o'clock political TV shows. They're not necessarily actually good ministers. Evan, you've been talking about a shuffle coming and you've been uh, focused on uh, what appears to be a, 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 a summer decline, if you will, for the, uh, for the Trudeau government and uh, in, your, in your very, very uh, popular Substack uh, scripture unscripted, um, you've been talking about the uh, anticipation of a cabinet shuffle. So before we talk about any of the specific stars, as it were, um, what were you anticipating and were any of your anticipations responded to by the prime minister today? So this was a bit of a bigger shuffle than I was expecting, um, which I think is a good thing, actually, because I think this is a sign that the government takes seriously their position. 
um, frequently governments that go down to especially heavy defeats tend to be the governments that keep everybody, just keep the same top team, just keep the same sort of nudging along and don't acknowledge their internal flaws and their issues. And I think at this point, it's pretty obvious that the government was willing to shake, shake it up. They were willing to put important ministers in important economic portfolios, and they got good, competent, delivery-focused ministers into places that are sort of either you know, sort of active fires or have the possibility to become active fires for them in the next year. And I think it's a, I think it's a cabinet shuffle that accomplished quite a lot for the prime minister, at least in theory. Obviously, you never know how these things end up. But I think this is a shuffle that if the liberals, you know, win the next election, I think this is a cabinet shuffle that you can look at and say this, you know, definitely helped them reach that goal. So which portfolios were to use your imagery, uh, which ones were on fire? Housing, immigration, and uh, public safety. Marco Mendicino, whether, whatever the Paul Bernardo stuff has in terms of the legalities, Marco Mendicino completely botched the politics of that, and he was becoming a running sword to the government. Uh, housing has been a disaster, and if you're going to try and get young voters who have been priced out of the current housing market back on side, it's going to have to be with the new minister. Sean Fraser, I think, was a no-brainer home run call for that uh, for for housing and immigration. It's starting to become an issue, both in terms of the implementation of the government's wishes, but also in terms of it's becoming a Quebec issue, right? Roxham Road is you know being closed, and you know hopefully that'll sort of bring the temperature down. But there are issues that the Quebec government is raising. And I think that if you start to get a situation where Mark Miller, who has been very good at crime indigenous relations, um, you know, you're going to have a situation where um, you, you, you've sort of put a few ministers in different portfolios. You've elevated smart, deep thinkers who will be able to take the political heat out of those issues and hopefully create sort of movement on those issues that can both fix real problems and take, you know, the, some of the conservatives' biggest political uh, opportunities away for the government. Is immigration becoming a more nettlesome issue because we have a housing problem and we simply don't have enough fresh housing for the new immigrants? Is that is that the problem? Yeah. Like, like everyone, everyone is fine with the idea of bringing in lots of immigrants in a vacuum, but there are strains on housing, on hospital capacity, that if you just keep letting in the the amount of people that we're letting in, are going to start putting strain, more strain onto systems that are already you know pretty strained. And while I don't think we're going to see a sort of like resentment towards immigrants and, and specifically people who have already come, I don't think we're going to start seeing sort of you know, issues in terms of multiculturalism. But I do think you're going to start to see, okay, the people who have already come, that's fine. They're here. They're Canadians. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, touch that. But I do think you're going to start to see a push for, we got to start bringing in less people if we can't build more hospitals, more schools, and a lot more houses. So you have to have a certain amount of teachers and doctors and nurses, healthcare facilities and healthcare infrastructure period. And of course, housing infrastructure before you can bring in half a million immigrants a year, which is the goal. Can't they simply reduce the goal and, and make life a little easier for themselves? They can, but the problem is, is that 
reducing immigration goes against a lot of the liberal values and the story that the liberal government tells about itself is, you know, inclusive and, you know, we're, we're players in the world stage and, you know, we're the greatest country on earth and everyone wants to come to Canada. Well, you know, sharply curbing the number of people who can come at the time you're trying to tell the story about yourself isn't going to work. And the other thing is, especially in the run-up to uh, an election where the liberals are going to need uh, ethnic minority communities in the 905 and in Greater Vancouver, um, the sort of easiest way you could reduce immigration is family reunifications, because no government's going to take, is going to slash, you know, economic migrants first and making it harder for people to get their cousins or their aunts or their whatever from overseas into Canada. That's not a political winner if you're going to try and keep government through Brenton, Mississauga, Surrey, and Burnaby. So is it overly simplistic to ask the question, if we have a problem with not enough teachers, not enough nurses, not enough doctors, why don't we make the new immigrants why don't we just sort of uh, do some targeting? And, and, and I'm, I'm positive without doing mounds and mounds of research that we have a number of people around the world who want to come to Canada who have experience with teaching and doctoring. If every federal government always says they want to work with the provinces and they want to you know, increase credentialing and they want to make it easier for foreign doctors and foreign uh, you know, teachers or whatever to just come in and do the job right away instead of you know, having to go work as taxi drivers or whatever while they deal with their arcane procedures to get their credentials. The problem with that is every government says that they haven't done it yet. Hopefully, if we're smart, there can be a consensus on this because it would solve a ton of problems if the masses of well-educated, well-credentialed, foreign doctors, nurses, teachers, engineers, whatever, can come in and fill these fill these vacancies. But it requires agreement with the provinces and, you know, it requires competence at a federal, it requires the federal government to prioritize it as a solution. And Hopefully, Mark Miller will look at that and say, this is one of the things I can come in and get done. Uh, somebody who, on the, indigenous, uh, on the Indigenous relations files that he's had for the last four years, has been very good at, okay, isolating issues and working through them. If he's smart, and, and he has proven himself to be smart so far, that'll be a priority for him. Well, I hate to make absolutist uh, statements, but I've got to say this. Everyone I know, including yours truly, who has a diverse group of friends and acquaintances, knows people who were not born in this country, who have experience in teaching and nursing and being doctors. Every one of us knows people from other parts of the world who have this experience, who would love to put their skills to work if only we could get that stuff that you're talking about out of the way. Now, Pierre Polyev calls it gatekeeping. I don't care what you call it. I mean, surely to goodness, a federal government ought to be able to, at, at these various meetings where they're bargaining with the provinces, uh, make that a priority. And, and the question then becomes, this is beyond today's uh, shuffle business, but with the provinces, isn't it in the interest of the various provincial governments to put good people to work? It's in everybody's interest, but the problem is that this, it, it's there are like questions about, okay, so how many countries count and, and what do you do and how do you confirm you know, like what it just you get bogged down into details and fights about arcane things, right? Does 
you know, do they need a three month sort of refresher or do they need a, you know, like, what do you need in terms of specific teachings versus general skills? Like, and that's where this, this effort continuously bogs down because it's difficult and because governments don't have attention spans anymore. It just gets lost. But this is something that they need to dig into because in theory, it should help everybody, right? It should help all the provincial governments that are facing, you know, teacher and doctor shortages It'll help the federal government because it'll reduce the pressure on them to sort of have a rethink about their immigration policy. And the other thing the feds can do, of course, to speed this up is the provinces all want more money from the federal government at all times. So, you know, the feds should use the ability to, you know, help pay for more hospitals, more schools, whatever, like the physical buildings, they should use that as leverage to try and get this done because it it is an writer. It needs to happen expeditiously. So Evan Scrimshaw, you're someone who is a person with a pretty tight lens on, on government. You really uh, look at it in a very granular manner. And I appreciate the fact that you're giving us some generalizations here because otherwise, otherwise only the public policy wonks are involved in, in, in the podcast in terms of embracing it. So here's the, the question at a, at a non-granular level. What's your take on someone who I perceive from my perch as a very, very talented minister, but they keep changing her portfolios, and her name is Anita Nand. Uh, she's the MP from Oakville. Uh, she was the defense minister until about 10 minutes ago, and now she's the treasurer. What's your take on, on her, her talent, her mobility, uh, why the government uh, keeps uh, shifting her, and uh, what her long-term uh, long-term uh, star trajectory it looks like to evan scrimshaw so she i i think i think treasury board is not going to be the traditional thing traditionally treasury board presidents are very low-key like no one knew who metaforte was who she's replacing i think the intent with anita nand is she has always been a sort of like firefighter for this government right she's always been a fixer she was procurement minister when we had the vaccine issues. Uh, she solved a lot of those for the government, right? She was able to get supply. She was able to manage and coordinate with the provinces. She's a super talented fixer. Uh, she's been in national defense for 18 months-ish. Um, there's some evidence that things are starting to get fixed there. But in terms of, like, she started the ball rolling on a lot of, like, cultural reforms in terms of how the services work themselves. Um at this point, though, the government has issues on cost of living and um, sort of pocketbook issues. And I think the Treasury Board is going to be a different portfolio now than it was. It's going to be a much more economic. And she's going to she's going to be the person in charge from all the reports and what I would think of getting Christopher Freeland's aspirations into policy, right? Coordinating inter, intergovernment, making sure that everything is flowing well, that they're getting bang for buck. and helping craft the government's economic path from here to the election. I think she's an incredible talent. And I think in her and Christopher Freeland, the liberal government has two cabinet ministers that are both, both incredibly smart and would both make incredibly good prime ministers. Um, if, and when Justin Trudeau retires, when Justin Trudeau retires. Um, but she is, she's incredibly good at, She's incredibly good at, at putting out fires for this government and for a government that has the ability to get knocked off message economically and be 
that doesn't frame their economic message in uh, in totality. It focuses on bits and pieces, a uh, coherent, full uh, you know full full government approach to how to get from where we are to a situation where more Canadians feel the economy is good by election day, I think is going to be a huge part of her job. And I think she is extremely well suited for it. And I think that the fact that um, Jean-Yves Duclos is at Kerman, her old job from her, you know, her job, job two jobs ago, I think those two will be able to work really well at solving some of the bigger structural problems of waste, especially in DOD, especially in defense procurement. And I think it'll enable the government to stop being on the back foot as much. Can she reduce the price of breakfast, lunch, and dinner? I think she will be able to help the liberals find a way forward that will recognize the fact that things have been hard for the last two years and try and continue to do things that will make things easier for people because people don't just need help now. They're going to need it even when prices stop going up as much things are still higher than they would have otherwise been and her appointment i think is a real sign that the liberals want to try and find some they want to find a better message they want to find a better policy mix to make it easier for you know regular everyday canadians otherwise they would have they would have left her at defense if if they weren't trying to put her front central front and center on their economic argument. Now, more with Charles Adler. So everyday Canadians are at the grocery stores virtually every day. And uh, those who read uh, the business sites and some others can't help but notice that the various grocery chains are doing very, very well. I mean, I'm, not, I, I'm a capitalist, so I don't never, I rarely use terms like obscene profits and, and that type of thing. I want people in the private sector to make a buck. But it's becoming increasingly clear that the food prices aren't just about the supply chain. They're about the priorities that grocery stores have to make money, make hay while the sun shines. And so it doesn't appear that they're losing customers. The customers keep wanting to come in and pay what most of us are now thinking of as outrageously high prices. Is it a good thing or a bad thing if a government, any government, in this case is the Liberal government, has a chat, and I mean a very, very public chat bordering on a, a scolding of the grocery chains? I think this policy where the Liberals spend some money to give to people to counteract the fact that the grocery stores are Certainly, they passed on a lot of price increases when there were supply chain issues and have mostly not sort of brought those back down. Um, I think the government, I think there is an understanding that they can't just keep spending money to solve that problem. They actually have to go in and fix it at the at the immediate level. Um, and I think having having government ministers who understand how this works, and having a, you know competent ministers in key economic portfolios will mean that there will be a greater understanding that we have to fight this fight, not just at the giving people more money because prices are high level, but also that, you know, yeah, fight with the, you know, trying to get the stores to do the right thing and, you know, reduce it. I mean, we have a competition board for a reason. Might not be the worst thing in the world if liberals were to, uh, maybe call on a uh, investigation from it. Sometimes things are just about the math. 
if, if the government wants to brag about a 3% GDP because that's better than many other countries on earth, that's great. Uh, if the government wants to talk about the countries in the world, that's great. But those two, 3% things are just things that become rather meaningless to people if their wages are increasing at no more than 2 or 3% a year and groceries are going up by 5 to 10 to 15% a year. I mean, the, the math doesn't add up politically, Evan. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. Like, you know, Christian Freeland is touting, you know, the, the lower, you know, lowest inflation in the G7. Like, yeah, that's true. No one cares. That is not an argument that is salient to anybody because they're still seeing the high prices, right? Prices haven't come down. They've just stopped going up as quickly. Um, and I think a, a governmental approach that focuses on, again, the whole, a, a, a more wholesale approach as opposed to the very piecemeal approach the liberals have had for the last six months. Like the liberals have not been on message for six months. They've been a mess. They've been being knocked off track by, you know, China, by uh, Michael Cooper, Sam Cooper, Bob Fife, like they need to get a message. They need to stick on a message. And I think ha- putting their best, their best economic thinkers in Anand, Freeland, and Duclos in the three of the biggest economic departments, I think is going to open up the government to make better decisions that are going to be able to help more people in the best way possible. Evan, help me with this. Why do why does so much of the punditocracy keep talking about an election just around the corner, even when they see a, a big cabinet shuffle? Oh, there must be an election coming this fall. The government does not have to call an election. Why the heck would they when the polls say they would lose? Because political reporters get really bored. Because political reporters like to cover politics, not policy. Um, elections are more fun than parliamentary sittings. And generally speaking historically minority parliaments have not lasted very long and so so reporters have this sort of like sense thing of like oh it's been a minority parliament you know the clock is ticking but the liberals have never shown any wanting for this to be a two-year parliament they want it to be a four-year parliament that's why they signed the deal with the ndp um and the other thing is of course every every sensible economist every mainstream you know bank view whatever um, says the economy will be better in 2024 and 2025 than it is now. And if that's true, then the liberals will obviously want to go when the economy is good. Because if inflation continues to cool, we get a year of strong employment numbers, we get some wage growth finally, some real wage growth. Um, you know, Economic indicators, economic sentiment will be a lot better in two years or in a year and a half. And the other thing is, Pierre Polyev is not exactly doing well himself, right? Polyev has, you know, a big lead in in a poll out today, but even there, it's not that he has any great particular, um, it's not like he's super popular with the electorate, it's just that he's there. And so if you're the liberals, you want to give Polyev as much rope as humanly possible. You want to have him talk as many times as possible between now and election day. Because if the goal is to beat him, then you got to find ways. You just got to let him keep talking and keep having incidents and keep, you know, making a fool of himself. So, no, there's not going to be an election. There was never going to be an election. And everybody who's doing it is bored and hoping that we get some excitement sometime soon because that's more entertaining for the press corps and the pundits than covering, uh, you know, a legislative agenda. 
So there's a, a feeling out there that uh, the people are in the mood for a change. And it generally happens after a government has been in, in power for the better part of eight years now. Fine. So there's a mood for change. And there's a feeling out there among some people that the more contrast there is between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau, that the more that benefits Pierre Polyev, even if the contrasts that are being painted are not exactly flattering to Polyev. The, the fact is he's different. He's very different. And that's supposed to be, according to some, very helpful to him. What do you make of that kind of thinking? It's wrong. Like, the the problem is that we've only had 23 prime ministers in Canada. And, like, you know, realistically, there's only been about 15 who ever who served, like, any meaningful amount of time in office. And so, you know, we have these, like, gaudy statistics about, you know, no government has ever, you know, has won a fourth term in a row, whatever. That's so meaningless. The... The right comp for the for the for the liberal position right now is Dalton McGinty circa 2009-2010, right? Pretty unpopular. People don't love the leader, but it's an untested opposition leader who hasn't who doesn't isn't any more popular with the general electorate than the premier. And the premier in in Dalton's case, Dalton was always good in a campaign, just like Trudeau is, right? Dalton could get annoying between campaigns because he was he was great at not answering a question when he didn't want to, but he was always a really good campaigner. And when you got him in that setting, the Ontario Liberals would, would come back. And that's the right comp. This idea that there's a clock that's going to eventually run out. Yeah, sure. But the BC Liberals won a fourth term when nobody thought they were going to. The Ontario Liberals won two elections that they probably shouldn't have, both 2011 and 2014. Uh, Jean Charest didn't win the 20, the 2012 Quebec election, but you know, the way that people talked about that, that government, you know, they were supposed to be wiped off the face of the earth for most of 2011. And then Charest ends up four seats short of the PQ, right? Like the idea that the idea that there's just a sort of clock that will not be there. No, Polyev has to win this and Polyev hasn't fixed any of his massive recurring problems. And it's it's a lot of, you know, the 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 abacus bull today that everyone's pointing to is this, you know, horror story for the liberals. You know, people don't love Polyev even in this poll. And the thing is, until Polyev either fixes his his problems, then then he he has nothing locked up and he doesn't even have anything necessarily going for him because the liberals have had a bad year. Right. The liberals haven't had a message. They've been, you know, completely incompetent in terms of how they've handled the China stuff from a communication standpoint. Yeah, it's not a surprise that they're not doing well, but it's also the case that every time people actually go and vote in these by-elections, that the government does better than they should. If this was really a government that was, you know, being ready to be tossed on its derriere, we'd be seeing massive swings against them when voters have the opportunity. We're not seeing it. And Polyev has real problems. Evan Scrimshaw, I want to pick your brain a little bit. I mean, you make a you make a living by uh, servicing uh, those people who who gamble on sport. I know there are some connections between the sport of politics and the sports like basketball and baseball and hockey. I mean, I, I, I get that, but I just want to get into your 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 soul for for a moment. It's not just Ottawa. It can't just be location, location. I get that you're in Ottawa, 
What is it about Evan Scrimshaw's biography, your soul, as it were, that connects you as deeply as it does to political observation? I, I like studying power, and I like studying influence, and I like studying the causes of things, right? And so politics and sport both have the same sort of connective tissue of we know the outcomes, but we don't always know why they happen. And so to me, the sort of drama, the intrigue, figuring out what actually matters, what actually causes election results to be what they are, the the actually resonant ideas as opposed to the pundit class dribble is as entertaining to me conceptually as, you know, trying to figure out whether a football team is, you know, actually going to, you know, how a quarterback wide receiver matchup works there or, you know, whether the Oilers have enough, have enough depth of scoring um, to, to go deep in the playoffs knowing that, of course, they've got the high end down, right? It's the same thing. I like figuring puzzles out, and I find the puzzle of politics and power to be endlessly fascinating. Are the pundits in sports closer uh, to the hearts and minds of sports fans than those people who cover politics? No, because the pundits, because the pundits in sports and the pundits in politics both suffer from the same thing, which is they're job increasingly is to be incendiary and to create headlines and stories as opposed to reflecting what people actually want to hear right there's a reason why you know turn on you know espn or whatever in the states and it's just debate show after debate show that's not how people talk that's not how people think there are conversations in politics and there's conversations in sport but they're not vitriolic and the problem with the pundit class in both sports, both sports and politics, is they they don't talk the way that sports fans or political observers do, right? When I'm, you know, DMing people on Twitter, right? When I'm chatting through, you know, what the cabinet shuffle means, you know, that's not how it's talked about publicly, right? Everything is so, you know, pitched to the max, right? You know, was this a was this a disaster shuffle or was this genius? <laughs> what it's it's actually in the middle, right? There are good moves and there are bad moves, and there are super interesting conversations you can have about, you know, well, why did he, you know, why did why did Trudeau put Minister X here and Minister Y there as opposed to reshuffling them? Like, but the problem is, is that that doesn't people do not focus more on the conversations. They 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 like the take. Right. Oh, this this is a cabinet shuffle that means Trudeau is gearing up for an election. That's what they think people want. But what people actually want is a conversation about. So, be, you know, be, because he moved, he made these three moves. I think that means that. And I think we need conversation less than takes. I think we need. To work through the the, the 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 possible outcomes of an of an event, as opposed to walking out of everything with this sort of like you know thirty second locked in, boom, this is it. I don't think I don't think that does anybody any good, because you can look at this cabinet shuffle and point out different things and have different takeaways from it. And that's how most political events are, right? Things are in the gray. They're in. You know, they they live in interpretation and they live in 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 
plausible theories, not absolute knowledge. We don't know. We think. We have ideas. We have ideas based on experience and data and facts and whatever else. But anybody who says they know anything for dead certain, you know, I heard, you know, from multiple people, you know, I, I, you know, I've been getting the cabinet speculation all week, right? You know, there were people, you know, I had ministers that were that were definitely getting three different cabinet jobs this week. Like, we don't know things. We think we know things, and we should probably be less certain and less takey and more kind of conversational. Evan, uh, not going to leave the conversation unless uh, and until you tell people where to find you on on the sports sites. Uh, where do we go to to find? Evan Scrimshaw's uh, sports perspective. Uh, TheLines.com. I'm doing a lot of NFL and NHL work over there. I also wrote about uh, Joe Biden in the Democratic primary over there um, this week. So find all of that. And also just follow me um, because you find all of my, uh, I tweet out all the articles. So if you ever miss something, it's right there. So just follow Evan Scrimshaw on Twitter. And uh, his sports stuff, and it's mostly sports, is on The Lines, thelines.com. Evan Scrimshaw in Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for telling your friends. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.